Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. Okay, I wanted to hop on the mic today to talk about RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star 7, which I saw everyone tweeting about it. I was on a plane yesterday on my way home from Los Angeles, and I made the mistake of taking a flight during an important gay event, and therefore I'm trying not to check social media, but of course I'm checking social media, and I'm seeing, they weren't even really spoilers, like they were avoidable, I could keep scrolling, but I still just saw people clamoring, and I wanted to be in on the conversation. So when I got back, went to sleep, woke up this morning, before I did anything, I was like, okay, let's mainline the first two episodes of Drag Race All-Stars 7. I have to say, in the beginning, I was hoping this was going to be branded differently as like a RuPaul's Drag Race winners at war type of ordeal, the way, um, you know, just with his own packaging. But now that I think about it, because it is not every winner ever I think it works as an all-stars seven season I think about the fact that for instance the first all-star season of survivor is just survivor season eight you know so it exists within the canon despite the fact that it has an unusual format so I think that that works now I tend to have a bad attitude when it comes to a new season of like a reality show so whether that be Housewives, Drag Race, Survivor, what have you, I will see a trailer for a new season and instinctively sort of just be like, okay, X show is in their flop era. And I think, being honest, when I heard that this was happening, I was so excited because I love the idea of an all winners. I like the idea of an even playing field. I think that's really exciting because one of the difficult things with any all-stars on any type of show is we all have our own metric of what it means to be an all-star. So oftentimes what I find happens on these shows is I'm kind of like, okay, well, not everyone's stacking up with like, you know, coming to the table with equal merit. Um, But with something like All Winners, it's just there's there's an objectivity to the fact that they all have earned their spot here, no matter how you feel about it. 
I think we have to acknowledge the fact that it's disappointing not to see some of the greats a part of this show. I mean, obviously, when I say some of the greats, I'm thinking of Bianca Del Rio. I'm thinking of Violet Chachki. I'm thinking of Bob the Drag Queen. I'm thinking of Sasha Velour. So that part is is frustrating, as is the fact that I am disappointed not to see BB there. I think BB is the very first winner. And I understand the argument is, well, she came back already, so she's had a second go. But I get the impression BB's schedule would allow for her to be on this if she wanted to. And I would imagine that she would want to be a part of this. So I don't know. I'm just all about having the original doll be a part of something like this. So bummed not to have her. I think Drag Race is a bit in a precarious position as well because they have two winners, uh, season two's Tyra Sanchez and season four's Sharon Needles, both of whom have uh, troubling post-show lives that would make their participation in a show like this, uh, I'm going to say, impossible. I do not think they would be asked to participate, despite the fact that They are two very legendary queens within their season, but that have, you know, for good reason, uh, been scrubbed from the drag race canon. But when you're doing an all-winner season and you can't have two of your winners, it just, you know, it leaves a certain taste in your mouth. Then there's the conversation about whether or not all-stars queens should be contenders because technically they've played more than once, right? And it's a little, it's a different drag race when you're playing all-stars. They are winners, but some might say like they're non-canon winners. I don't really know how I feel about it. But when they first announced this cast, I was super excited, mostly to see Jinx and Raja, my girl Raja, back in the workroom. I thought it was really exciting to have queens that have not played again, first of all, and that were a part of such a different version of Drag Race. You know, when Raja played, the prize was $75,000. The prize for All-Star 7 is $200,000. I mean, like, that alone is just one way in which the show has absolutely changed. Also, the fact that just social media wasn't a big part of the show back in season three, and I'm excited for Raja to sort of, like, bolster her following, and perhaps new opportunities can come her way, which is super exciting. Okay, so I put it on with my bad attitude um, of just thinking, you know, we just finished a main season of Drag Race. We just finished UK versus the world. Uh, There's just all of these international franchises happening. It feels right now that there is an oversaturation of Drag Race, which there is. And, and I loved it. I had such a great time. I think seeing Cameron Diaz, Naomi Campbell, and Daphne Guinness as three of the first celebrity guests on the show felt like a signal of like, we did not come here to fuck around. And I signal heard, you know what I mean? Like that was just really something. Watching Naomi Campbell not only walk the main stage, but like commit to the gig was really satisfying. Cameron Diaz was having the time of her life, make her a permanent fourth judge. Also, why not have... Cameron Diaz be the guest judge for Snatch Game. It's literally makes so much more sense than to have Daphne Guinness, who, listen, I love Daphne Guinness, but like this wasn't her best format, if you will. 
you know? Like, I feel like you want Daphne maybe, like, maybe Daphne could have had a role similar to Naomi Campbell's. Also, I wish Naomi Campbell would have been a guest judge, but I'm sure maybe scheduling or something didn't allow. But I just had so much fun. It was so fun to see so much talent in that workroom and to see girls who kind of recognize the fact that this is not the RuPaul's Drag Race that once existed. Like, it is, whether we like it or not, and that's a whole separate conversation, we are in the era of RuPaul's best friend race. But once you kind of accept that shift in the format, and, and you know, underscoring just that is the fact that no queens will be going home this season, which I'm sure people are going to feel really strongly about. On the one hand, this is a reality competition show that has more or less removed the competition aspect of it. On the other hand, this gives all eight of these queens an opportunity to perform and really show the breadth of their skill set, which I think is super exciting. It's funny, though, because the show still wants to build in the competition aspect with these badges that you can earn. That that part to me feels a little overcomplicated. Um, but I also understand like they're trying to make incremental changes so that the show feels familiar yet is evolving. And so I think sometimes just there's growing pains that happen with shows like this. But I appreciate the willingness to change more than I do like the stubbornness of shows like Top Model that I think had more life in them had they chosen to sort of like mix things up more. So I ultimately am excited to know that I'm going to have Raja and Jinx and Shay and Monet on my screen for eight weeks. I would have preferred 10 queens. I like 10 to eight. I think that it just gives more variety. And I have to believe given that they you know, with the inclusion of the Vivian, they clearly were allowing for uh, international queens. I would have loved to see Lawrence Cheney, for instance, uh, one of the winners from Thailand, one of the winners from Australia. I mean, there are so many international franchises I could go on for an hour at this point. So more international girls without question. Um, and just, yeah, more winners in general. I, I always say the more, the better. It gives these queens more opportunities to show off their craft. And then... And then we just have to talk about Jinx and that Snatch Game. You see, there's a veteran named Dave who's been on your show, and he said uh, he was worried that he killed me. I think I might have killed Judy Garland. And I want to say, Dave, if you're watching, you're not responsible, darling. It's, it's all right. You're forgiven. The fact that Jinx made that reference to Paul, who was a one of the makeover contestants from Jinx's original season, season five, who, who came in and he has this moment with a bewildered RuPaul in which he tells RuPaul totally earnestly that he thinks that he is responsible for Judy Garland's death. And it's also <laughs> adding to the comedy is the fact that Dave seems to be regarding Rue as one of Judy's contemporaries. So it's almost like the vibe is like, I killed your friend. And the fact that Jinx, all of these years later, her second episode on the show is making a deep cut reference to Dave. I mean, Michelle Visage's reaction alone just sort of told you that like Jinx is, is playing this game just right. I love 
hello, if you know me, you know I love a reference and I love the medium of Drag Race to make such a reference because they literally have the capability to flashback for those that weren't watching Jinx's original season. I just, I like the celebration of Drag Race as being a show that's existed for what, 13 years now, 14 years, and and that recognition of history. I mean, if Drag Race is a part of queer history, then Drag Race acknowledging its own history is, I don't know, something, right? That's like a thing, right? Acknowledging the thing within the thing. I don't know. But anyway, I just wanted to say that any bad attitude I might have had about this season has been washed away. I think that that lip sync between Monet and Shay was just top tier, outstanding, state-of-the-art drag. I loved watching it. When they would cut between the two of them, I kept getting frustrated because I was like, no, 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 go to the other one, but then they would go to the other one, and I, I wanted them to go back, and I just felt like in this day and age, I feel like it can be hard to master the lip sync because of the expectation of like the drag race fans have foisted onto a lip sync. So it's exciting when people, two people, just come out there and just kind of show you that you don't need the bells and whistles. That said, the bells and whistles can and do work often. There's just variance here, right? There's not one way to do a lip sync. And both of them are just such outstanding queens. Can we just say, like, having Monet Exchange and Shea Coulee, who, I'll be honest, initially, I was like, we just saw them. Monet was on All Stars 4, won the crown with Trinity. Shay won the crown a season later on All Stars 5. I kind of was like, do we need to do this again? But then as soon as they were on my screen, I was like, yes, we absolutely need to do this again. They have more to show. They've changed and grown as people. Their drag has changed. Like, why not? I think that was my big takeaway. Just throughout this episode, there was a lot of why not. I thought Rue and Michelle were just having so much fun just kicking so it. So much energy, so much presence really commanded that performance that I didn't care so much. The wig was terrible. Uh, <laughs> burn it, because it was horrendous. <laughs> and that was a pussycat wig. That, that was an alley cat wig. <laughs> that was a feral cat wig. <laughs> I, I, I really had a good time, and it made me really happy to watch it. I was entertained and I thought there were just so many moments that really popped. And I don't know, just seeing Raja back on the screen, like it almost made me emotional because she walked right back in and it was as though she never left, despite the fact that so much time had lapsed between her last time in there. And as much as I like the idea of like, we both like, you know, as queer people or as drag queens or as people in general, we grow and we change. I also like the idea of like, we are ourselves always like at the end of the day we are there's like that core self that exists through and through and Raja to me is that reminder of like sure you get the queens that come in like Tatiana who you know are one way on their one season and then come in and it's like a rejuged drag that presents itself that's awesome but what I loved about Raja is it was it was it felt to me like this is just you know a continuation and when, I, when you love a queen as much as you love Raja, what, what more could you ask for? I don't need, like, Raja the re-up. I just want Raja part two. Um, Raja Roman Reloaded, if you will. So I loved it. I had such a good time. I'm looking forward to more. I think we'll have to get another uh, Rue Girl, particularly one from All Star 7, on this show soon. So that's All Stars. Highly recommend checking out if you haven't. I'm sure we will touch down on it some more later this season. 
One other topic I wanted to get to before we throw to the interview today is Real World Homecoming New Orleans. Um, If you're not watching it, it's basically a new series from Paramount Plus that reunites former castmates from the real world 20 plus years later and has them live together once more and sort of reminisce about their past experiences with the lens of older age and then also the ways in which the world has changed since their original seasons. So they did New York, which is the very first season of the real world. They did uh, Los Angeles, which is season two. And then they jumped to season nine, New Orleans. I I heard that there were issues uh, gathering the casts, some of the casts for the uh, in-between seasons. But at the same time, it kind of feels like a natural place to go because there is something about season nine that has, you know, it captured the zeitgeist at the time. And for many of us, it stayed with us. And in particular, for gay people, the uh, I was going to say the character of Danny, but he's not a character. He's a person. Uh, Danny Roberts was one of the castmates at the time. He was 22 years old when the show was filmed. And he was one of the earliest depictions of an out gay person on reality television. Of course, there was Norman from The Real World New York. There was Pedro from Real World San Francisco. You had Genesis on Real World Boston. But Danny was a different kind of breakout star in that he just was, he had this boy next door charm to him. And he just was so out and proud without kind of making that his like existence. He, he was just, he was very comfortable being himself. And I think for a lot of, I was going to say elder millennials, but like, I think for a certain swath of millennials who grew up watching Danny on television, it was formative. I think formative is a word that's overused, particularly by me, but Danny Roberts was formative. I remember being in my basement and and seeing him on television and feeling something. Not knowing what that something was, but feeling something. And Danny sort of was entwined in this plot on the show uh, around Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, the policy that the Clinton administration had put into effect at the time because Danny's then-boyfriend, who it turns out he'd only met a few weeks before production, he was a part of the military. And in coming to see Danny was risking being discharged by people potentially finding out who he was. So as a result, he had his face blurred on the show. And one thing that Real World Homecoming is doing is is not only talking about this 22 years later, but it actually facilitated a meetup between Danny uh, and Paul. Uh, They had dated for seven years after the show, so there's a lot of context that we are not super keen to, but we get sort of a little bit of a a glimpse of through Danny's uh, uh, confessionals. Needless to say, I chatted with Danny and uh, I wanted to give you a sample of the interview here because I think he had some really interesting insights uh, about what it is to be, what it means to be the person that is formative. I think so many of us, myself and those of you listening, are used to glomming on to entities that that form us. And I, and I think this was an interesting shift in perspective to know how it feels on the other side. So here's just a bit of my interview with Danny. 
One quick note, though, is Danny's playing with something under the microphone during this answer. So you will hear hear that. And uh, I don't love it. Um, but I wasn't going to ask him to stop. In retrospect, you know what? I should have just asked, but I didn't. Anyway, so please don't mind uh, some rather sus audio here. A recent New York Times headline called you a gay icon. And I'm wondering how a title like that feels today. I don't know. What is an icon? Seems a little, it seems a, a, a bit of hyperbole to me. I, I, it's very flattering. It's this bigger event in a lot of young people's lives that was pivotal for them. And I think the icon is the uh, being shown something that was visible that allowed a lot of people to start thinking about their lives in an entirely new way that was freeing. And I think that is an iconic moment for a lot of your generation. I will say, though, I did take a little bit of issue with the line in the New York Times story. It said, but for a swath of gay elder millennials whose formative years unfolded to an MTV soundtrack. And I'm thinking we're all you, you included, like we're not that old. here. <laughs> I am Gen X and I will stand by that all day. <laughs> Technically, Zennials. Listen, first off, that being selected to be part of that story was like probably the most proud moment I've had in my life at this point. So meaningful, such an honor. And it's not just about me. It is the bigger story, the zeitgeist of the time and actually how that impacted a lot of people. I agree. I don't think it was that narrow slice of an audience. I think there was a huge amount of people who at the time were 12, 13, 14 years old, which by the way, blows my mind. I had no idea how many people that age were watching, mostly secretly. Um, I had always assumed it was people who were closer to my age and older that were watching. Probably the majority was Gen X, um, but no, here's the, the truth. Millennials love to frame themselves in the middle of everything. Uh -huh. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. There were there are other generations aside from millennials, though. <laughs> but yeah, no, I have to say, I'm one of those people. I think I was 11 years old when the season aired. I have very vivid memories of the shower scene in particular because I had never seen naked gay men. The word formative gets thrown around a lot, and I know, and I'm, and I know you get told it a lot. But there is something to be said about when an image is burned in your brain. And for me, it's the blurring of, of Paul's face, but also that shower scene. And there's this one time when you bring a bunch of guys home and you get into the hot tub naked. And I'm just like, I love that because it's both like very free of any inhibitions, but it's not like, it's not so salacious. You're just having a good time. But what's interesting is then you say goodnight to them at the end of the night. I mean, granted, you were with Paul at the time. One, I was very into Paul at the time, very into Paul, and there was no question in my mind. Number two, I was highly aware that, unfortunately for pretty much all of us, anyone that wanted anything to do with us in New Orleans at that time had ulterior motives. Um, we were just essentially pawns being used to, to gain access to the house. Um, and we were always hyper aware of that. Yeah. I mean, it was a good house. <laughs> I agree. Um, so you are someone who for the last 22 years, you've been in situations where you might be pumping your gas, or as we see in episode two, you're out at a bar, you're living your life and someone approaches you, not only recognizes you, but has this sort of like emotional dump, if you will, in which they tell you something along the lines of you were a gay icon, for instance, or you changed my life. 
you might be in the middle of something, right? It catches you very off guard. And I'm wondering with 22 years of going through that, how has your relationship to those exchanges evolved? In the early days when the show was especially still being aired on a regular rotation, remember they used to just air the hell out of it over and over and over again until a year later when the next season came and they would still be running the episodes late at night. And you couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. Um, and I lived in the South at the time for a few years before I moved off to Seattle. So, you know, even though most people were approaching me with some kind of kind words or even just excitement, my traumatized brain was like, oh, get away from me. Like, oh, like I had visceral reactions of feeling like I was constantly in danger. But, you know, over time that sank into me and my core and became my operating system. Um, and I realized that was, I realized that it was a thing several years later and I realized it was very unhealthy and then I had to undo it. And I went on a long journey, that mental health journey and spiritual journey of understanding, like learning the tools of understanding, for instance, what parasocial relationships means. You know, for the longest time, I couldn't even explain to people what I was feeling because I didn't have the language. I was having a conversation with friends last night and I was telling them I'm going to interview you today. And we were talking about the fact that 22 years ago, don't ask, don't tell was seen as a good thing by gay people. Like gay people were happy. We felt like Clinton had done something for us. We were being recognized. We now look at it. When I say we, I mean, most people, I, I don't want to speak for all, but we look at it now and we can say, this was so antiquated. This was awful. And I'm just wondering how you sort of like thread the needle on how far we've come, but also living at a time when that was, that was progress. You know, things are, our society did evolve so quickly in the past 20 years that um, for a lot of people now, it, it's not so much that maybe a lot of people have evolved. It's just that a lot of people have forgotten because things have changed so drastically. And it's hard to remember like, oh yeah, just 20 years ago, this is where we were. Especially for young people who have absolutely no relevance to it. Um, and I think for a lot of people today, everyone is very caught up in thinking in black and white ways. The, the mindset of the time, you know, when we were completely invisible and actively being erased around every turn where companies were actively and vocally anti-gay and proud of firing their gay employees you know it's the era we lived in um which by the way was a million times better than what people ex experienced just 50 years before but yes at the time the mindset was was any step forward even if it's a baby step is huge at least we were being recognized as existing um and that was the mindset then and that's it's hard, it's hard to think that way now because we just demand that things be the way that we expect them to be today. And it's the way a lot of people operate. Um, but I think we're all about to have a little wake-up call because America seems to be heading back in that direction in a lot of ways. And I think for a lot of people, there's going to be maybe for the first time in many people's lives, understanding what having to fight for incremental change again means. So that's a little bit of my chat with Danny. To read more about it, you can check out our interview on In the Know. Also, I want to encourage people to check out The Real World Homecoming New Orleans. It is captivating television. It The premise is put them all back together in a house, have them reminisce, and 
but what ends up transpiring is something that couldn't be predicted. Um, and I also think it's unique. This is not a cast that had kept in touch. You know, the seven of them had all more or less gone their separate ways. And so many emotions are brought up so quickly. And I think it's a reminder of, you know, just sort of... Uh, how much we think things that we've put in the rear view can find their way back to, I don't know, the dashboard. I, I can't do a car metaphor, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I just think that there's a lot to glean about the show beyond just these seven. That said, these are stars. Maybe not Matt, but these are, this is a cast of stars. So from one star, or rather from seven stars, wait, wait we began by talking about all stars. Then we talked about a group of stars, or who I consider stars, the cast of the real world, New Orleans, and then to another star, an award-winning star. Let's touch down on, <laughs> let's move to the fabulous Christina Ricci. Shut up, Evan. You know her and love her from her myriad film roles, including her screen debut in Mermaids, opposite Cher and Winona Ryder. In her youth, she appeared in a string of classics, including The Addams Family and its subsequent sequel, The Addams Family Values, as well as Casper and Now and Then. She broke the child star mold, beginning with roles in The Opposite of Sex, Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66, Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. Some other film roles include Woody Allen's Anything Else, Wes Craven's Cursed, Black Snake Moan, Speed Racer, and most recently, Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrections. She earned acclaim for her role as Selby Wall opposite Academy Award winner Charlize Theron in Patty Jenkins's Monster. Of her performance, critic Roger Ebert said, quote, she finds the correct note for Selby, so correct that some critics have mistaken it for bad acting, when in fact, it is sublime acting in its portrayal of a bad actor. Her television credits include The Simpsons, the Laramie Project, Malcolm in the Middle, Ally McBeal, Grey's Anatomy, The Good Wife, The Lizzie Borden Chronicles, Rick and Morty, and her much-buzzed-about role as Misty on the Showtime series Yellow Jackets, which is about to begin production on its second season. She also has a role in the upcoming Tim Burton-helmed Netflix series Wednesday, which sees actress Jenny Ortega taking on the role of Wednesday Adams opposite Catherine Zeta-Jones as Morticia. She appeared in music videos for Beck, MC Hammer, and Moby, and is the current face of Heaven by Marc Jacobs. She is also a spokesperson for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. This to say, she truly does it all. She is one of the hardest working, most dedicated, toughest, and resilient among us. She is the great Christina Ricci. <laughs> First of all, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, you have been a much requested guest and I'm just so delighted to like finally be in conversation with you. It feels like a long time coming. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so you are a new mother. You know, I remember we talked briefly when I had Jonathan Groff on the pod because you were in the Matrix press cycle. <laughs> and, and you literally messaged me saying, sorry, I can't record a voice memo. I'm literally giving birth, which is absolutely iconic. The day of my C-section. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Um, how is new motherhood for the second time? It's good. It's really good. I'm really lucky in that I have a husband who like does everything because um, I went right back to work kind of 
a couple of weeks after she was born um, and uh, was doing press right up until she was born. He really does so much. So I kind of feel like one of those really fancy moms that like hands the children off to the governess and then visits with them and goes back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You were discovered in your school's Christmas pageant, which reminded me of countless other celebrities of that time. I was thinking about Sarah Michelle Gellar, for instance, who she was discovered at a restaurant. She was just eating a meal when she was a kid and someone saw her and was like, you should be an actor. And I've been thinking a lot about the concept of discovery and how today so many people are seeking fame, whereas maybe 20 years ago or so, people were more finding fame. Do you ever get nostalgic for that time um, that seemed to hold more possibilities when you could you know, be performing as you were and someone would just see you and say, you, you should be an actor? Yeah, there probably isn't that anymore. Someone who goes like a like a scout, there probably is not a talent scout anymore. That job won't exist because everybody's already putting themselves out there. I mean, I guess so. I guess the major thing that I find different that I sort of enjoyed was in the past, it was really sort of shameful to court fame and attention. You know, it was like really cheesy. Um, and so like, but but there were places in LA that you knew as a celebrity, if you went there, you'd be photographed. So it was sort of like, oh, I feel really cute today. Maybe I should just go down to Robertson <laughs> and like, you know, see who's around. Or like accidentally pull up on Larchmont um, in my brand new outfit. You know what I mean? It, it was sort of the game of that I found to be a lot more charming. It's a more charming way of handling your fame whoring. <laughs> Charming is one of my absolute favorite words. I, I completely understand. There's so much about 90s culture that uh, I look back on and I'm just incredibly nostalgic for, as you say, the charm. Now, you've been doing interviews for a long time and the media has changed a lot over the years. I'm wondering if there's anything that you've observed about interviews changing. Um, you know, you used to do like talk shows like Jay Leno and David Letterman and you get these six minute bites. Now you do podcasts, you, you know, where you can talk in long form. And also journalists have changed in terms of what they ask. That's true. I feel like still though, I forget about tone and the lack of context sometimes in interviews. And so I still end up saying something that embarrasses me. And, um, and I still hate doing talk shows and all that stuff. But these days, like you have to be good at doing them or else you're it's over. So, <laughs> but I do appreciate the podcast because like you say, it's longer form. You have more of a chance to explain yourself. Things are not necessarily taken out of context. It's conversation. So that is better actually. So in my research, I discovered this absolutely fabulous quote of yours from a 1999 Rolling Stone profile. No, trust me, it's fabulous. And it was done while you were in Paris. And journalist David Lipsky writes, quote, when the waiter brings our check, I explain that the magazine will cover it. And Ricci watches the waiter leave and says, we should have gone somewhere more expensive. And I just have to say, I've never related to a human being more. <laughs> funny yeah no always go somewhere more expensive when someone else is paying that's the most important rule of thumb you know just thinking about that rolling stone profile for instance and that journalist was shadowing you i believe you went to like the louvre or something together and he was with you at lunch and everything that seems to be something that just doesn't happen so much anymore i mean i've done cover profiles of artists that are a 30 minute zoom call and i'm doing a full-blown cover did that aspect of the job, having to like really spend time with journalists, did you, was that ever pressure? Because you're supposed to be yourself, but they're kind of like micro watching you. Well, yeah, I mean, that is the trick. And that is the big lie about being interviewed. It's like, don't actually be yourself. 
because <laughs> you're dealing with a real human being who might not get the joke, who might not relate to you at all and see something totally different. So it really is sort of like, but that is the trick. It's like you, you lie, you pretend <laughs> to be someone else. But I'm sad that they don't do that anymore, where they like follow a person and you have to choose an activity where you like one meal interview and then one activity interview. Um, and that, cause that used to feel really like special, you know, it was like, oh, it's a cover story. We're going to spend a lot of time and they really want to get to know me. Right. But, Still, don't 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 be yourself. <laughs> Not just for actors, just in general. Yeah, put put up a veneer. Um, and two, to your point, I feel like one of the things that's lost now is the opportunity to observe things because not everyone is a great conversationalist and it doesn't mean they're not an interesting person. And part of what was great about shadowing actors was you got to see the way they interacted with their friends, with the world, with their family. When you're just doing an interview, you're forced sometimes to take them for what they say versus what they do. Least favorite kind of interview is the Q&A format. That is just a nightmare. Some of us yeah. do not speak as eloquently as others. <laughs> like, it always fills me with such panic when I know that's what we're doing. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. You recently appeared in Marc Jacobs's recent Heaven campaign. It was so iconic. You looked so stunning. And I just want to know, what do you love most about Marc Jacobs? What I love most about Marc Jacobs is that he really is an artist, you know, in the way he lives his life, in his fashion. I just, I remember being really young and his clothes were the most accessible clothes in terms of like, you could find them anywhere. And they felt like, high fashion and they felt special and they had personality. And then when he was at Louis Vuitton, it's like the best era of Louis Vuitton. I still have shoes from that era and stuff. I can't fit in them anymore because my feet have grown due to pregnancy, but I will never get rid of them because they're just works of art. And everything he does is special. His shows um, feel so elevated. I don't know, but there's also this amazing sense of humor. So he's really an icon. He is an icon. I told him that you and I were going to be talking today, and he actually wanted to weigh into this conversation with a question for you. Okay. Hey, Christina, it's Mark <laughs> Jacobs here, and uh, I've got a question for you. Um, what have you regretted wearing? What was the worst thing you've ever worn that you totally regretted and wish you could erase from your fashion moments? Wow. Okay. I have worn some things I've been embarrassed about for sure. But I think the worst outfit I've ever seen a photo of was these, um, it's, it's probably 1998. Um, and I'm wearing these black, um, these black like pedal pusher 
flame pants. Like they have flames running down up and down the legs um, in bright red and orange, like flame colors. Um, and then I have this, I mean, I, you know, it was, I was kind of a grungy sort of dresser. So I'm wearing this like little um, t-shirt out of like a nice material, but it's got a big hole in it. And then some horrible sweater. And I think I have like a dog chain collar on. And I just look horrible. <laughs> I love that you went exactly to that outfit. You didn't have to think about it. You were ready with that. It's the most shameful of everything. Now, I think the reason why so many people connect connected and connect with your style is it has real POV. I think today, a lot of people coming up, and this is not a read on them, but they work with stylists and their style becomes sort of very saturated in the interests of the stylist or, or working with certain brands. Your style has always felt just so authentic. Is that something that you thought a lot about or it just inherently sort of came to you? No, I mean, it's not something I've thought a lot about. It just, I am very involved with my stylist because I love fashion so much. Um, so I have, a, I do have a heavy influence on sort of what's pulled for me. Um, and then I just sort of always go with what I like because if you, I don't know, I like very specific things and then it all kind of follows and makes sense because it's all the stuff I like, which is mostly black. <laughs> You are a darling to so many designers. You've had the opportunity to meet so many designers. I found a, a picture of you at a John Galliano after party from 1993. It's like you and Galliano. I'm just like, holy fuck, the shoulders you've rubbed up against. What is it like to interact with, you know, Mark Jacobs, we were just talking about, and John Galliano, and get to be in conversation with these true artisans of the great craft of fashion? It is really amazing. And I think for me, because I've always loved fashion, like they are to me, the really like, celebrities and I'm often extremely nervous when I actually do meet the, the designers after the show or whatever but because of Instagram I've actually become friendly with a lot of um, designers and people that I really respected it's like being pen pals with people I'm kind of shy so it's been a really wonderful way for me to actually meet the get to know people that I admire you know, you and I first connected on Instagram and, and I love the way you use Instagram. And I feel like my sense is that you really enjoy it. You really can interact with your fans if you want, or at the very least sort of like see the fandom, right? Like when Yellow Jackets was happening, it's like, you can go on a place like Instagram and see the fact that like, everyone's buzzing about this show. You don't have to just read what the critics are saying. You see the fans going off. No, it's true. Um, but some, but even so that feels it's it's not tangible really um the success of something because you know it's not you feeling it it's all these other people I do like Instagram I like it mostly for um sort of I I don't know there's just so many people I would never know what they were doing or anything I'm, I'm like a proper old person now it's gonna be like so great to be able to see what everyone's up to and connect with people finally but that is like how I feel and um and you can correct like a bad picture by like flooding with really good pictures, <laughs> which, which is great too. But I think I use it more for peering out than peering in. Okay, I wanna ask about some of your early roles. Um, I wanna first ask about mermaids and working with a, a performer by the name of Cher, who I think you've, you've heard of and, and, and met a few times. Um, obviously you were young and this is a while back, but I was reading that it was really Cher that went to bat 
for you in that role because she took a liking to you. And I'm just wondering what you remember about that time and first meeting Cher. Well, I first met Cher when I flew into Boston to do the audition for Mermaids. And it was really exciting. And my mother had told me all about Cher and we had watched Cher's, some movies of Cher's and stuff. She made me feel very comfortable. They were great. When I first met Cher, she was really nice and they, they were joking about stuff. You became her pal during she the movie. She loves During kids. the movie, yeah, we were real close friends. We were like three sisters. But it was a lot of fun? Had sleepovers yeah, and stuff, I understand. Yeah, Slumber parties? we had three sleepovers. Um, it was great. One. It was really incredible to learn from someone like that. I read this really interesting story that I wanted to jog your memory and see if you remembered. So I read that you didn't know what it meant to be gay while you were filming Mermaids because you were literally a young person that wouldn't know. And so it was your co-star, Winona Ryder, who telephoned her then boyfriend, Johnny Depp, and had Johnny Depp explain it to you. And I'm just wondering if you remember that phone call. I do. I do remember the phone call. And you just put it really simply. He was like, you know, it's like when a man wants to have sex with a man or a woman wants to have sex with a woman. And I was like, oh, all right. Okay, all cleared up. Thanks very much. <laughs> what was it like for you working with Winona at the time and having someone on set who was not a full-fledged adult, but you know, was older than you, but I imagine you might've gotten like a big sister vibe from her. Was that sort of how it felt? Yeah, that is kind of how it was. I mean, she was really funny. She was 17 years old. I was nine and I would go and hang out with her and she actually taught me how to smoke a cigarette. It was like the trailers where the, there's still like a driver's seat in the trailer. And so it had the punch lighter. So she'd be sitting in the back and she'd say, Christina, go, she said, Christina, go light this for me. And I like took the thing, took the punch lighter and went like that with the cigarette and brought it over. And she's like, no, you have to inhale while you're lighting it. And she sort of taught me how to do this. If anyone's going to teach you how to smoke a cigarette, let it be Winona Ryder. Also, cigarettes are really coming back. There was that piece in the New York Times several months ago about cigarettes, you know, coming on back. And oh, they're coming back. Oh, great. I know, I, I'm, I'm here for it. I know it's like Good moderation. I don't know. When uh, Carrie Bradshaw lit up that cigarette on and just like that, it just like unlocked something in me. And I was like, okay, we're back. Like having Carrie back on my screen was one thing. Having Carrie lighting a cigarette. Oh, it's like, oh, we're really, we're back, back. Like a European summer. Exactly. Um, obviously, like most people, I'm a huge fan of the Adams family. Who's not? I'm wondering what it was like for you when you first read the script, right? Because at that point, you don't, you don't know what the aesthetic is. You don't have the costumes in front of you. And I'm just wondering if like that particular humor, calling it dark humor is like, it is dark, but it's like, it's even better than dark humor. It's just so, there's so much there. Let's all clean our rooms. Hello, Polly. I'll clean my room in exchange for your immortal soul. Do you remember first reading it and, and what sense you got of like what it was going to look like? No, I mean, I would have first read the script at nine years old. Um, so I don't remember reading the script. I don't even know that I read the full script until, until we were at the table read. Um, I have no recollection of what I thought it would be like because I was just so young, you know? Right. And then you come back for the second film. And at that point, the first film was a huge hit. The second film really centers your character. At that point, you're a little bit older. Did you understand sort of like the weight of this film and how much people liked it at that point? You know, I've never been able to like tangibly feel the success of one project or another, you know, cause I'm in my body, in my life, living it. Like, it's just, I don't know how you actually, like, where do you go to like read the thing that's gonna make you actually like feel how real it is? I don't know. So. 
I was, I've always been like that. So as a kid, like I, when I read the second script, I knew like I had more to do in it and I was excited, but that was pretty much it. When the recent Wednesday was announced and it was announced that you were going to be a part of it, people went crazy, myself included. You talk about the fact that, you know, you're not always processing the way people feel about a project, but in that moment, did you feel it? Cause I felt like it was one of those moments where the entire internet sort of rallied together and was like, yes, this is the casting that we want. I don't know. I wasn't able to really feel that either. <laughs> people like sent me all the outlets that picked it up so I could like understand how major it was, but still that doesn't, I don't know why it's just like, doesn't permeate. I don't think that's the worst thing though, because the sense that I get is it tells me that you don't spend a ton of time thinking about yourself, which I think is a very healthy way to live. Well, I have trouble seeing myself from other people's perspectives. You know what I mean? Like I don't spend a lot of time trying to imagine that because I just find it impossible. I get that. As I mentioned earlier, Wednesday is coming to Netflix. So exciting. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Jenny Ortega, and you, I'm already shaking. And then on top of all of that, it has you reuniting with director Tim Burton. What's it like getting to work with someone who you worked with so many years ago and knew you at this completely other juncture of your life and to come back now and you've grown and changed, he's grown and changed, but you're making another project together. I imagine that's a rare opportunity. Yeah, it is. I was really, really um, happy about it. I mean, I just, I think Tim is such a genius. And so I was excited to be a part of another one of his projects. But then also when I worked with him, I was like, I think I was 19 years old. And, you know, I was a bit of a, a real teenage kind of not in on the joke. I think I was a disappointment a little bit, actually. So I was really happy to be able to come back now that I'm like an adult and I'm with it. And I'm not some loser child that just cares about partying all the time. <laughs> I want to ask about now and then. We owe you warmers, and we always pay our debt. Yeah, like I'm really afraid of a bunch of girls. But I'm wondering what it was like shooting that film and being together with that young group of women um, at the time. I mean, I know that the adult cast didn't really work with the young cast at all. Did you have any interaction with the adult cast? We had one photo shoot, and that was it. That is that for the cover of the movie? Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Really good styling. <laughs> White t-shirt and cheap. Yeah. Hey, it's classic. Now in 2015, screenwriter Marlene King revealed that your character, Roberta, a part that you share with Rosie O'Donnell was originally written to be gay. Were you aware of that in 2015? Were you aware of that before then? Was that news to you? Isn't she gay in the movie? She's not gay. It was original. Well, this is what I read and maybe you know differently. I read that it was filmed as such and that they tested the movie in front of an audience and that people did not take to your character, Roberta, Rosie O'Donnell, um, be, like the birth scene. Um, and that as such, they like had to remove something and took out any mention of her being gay. Interesting. I didn't know that because we did film it that way. And I just assumed it that had stayed in there. I always thought she ended up gay. Listen, I think canonically we can consider her gay. Um, you have a co-star from Now and Then, who you also co-starred with briefly in the film Casper, and I wanted to bring him into the conversation. Hi, Christina. It's Devin Sawa. Um, my boy Evan reached out to me and asked me if I had any questions for you, and um, I thought about it, and I do actually. Wondering what your favorite memory um, shooting the movie Now and Then was. Um, 
Yeah, that's my question. I just wonder if you, what, what what you remember the most. What was what was what stands out? Um, miss you. I hope you're doing well. Um, yeah. Bye. Making now and then was really fun. Uh, Gabby and I met. Gabby Hoffman and I met on now and then, and we became best friends. What stands out the most for me is just going. We would, you know, I'd go to the mall all the time with Gabby and Devin. Actually, would come as well. Um, and we would just be like, you know, like delinquents at the mall. And um, that was really fun. We'd, and like all the kids were staying at the same hotels. So we'd swim in the pool at night and stuff. Maybe this is like that thing that you're not thinking about because you're just doing it. But like, was there a point at which you felt I am a success? I can I can keep doing this thing. You, I have enough hits behind me that this can sustain me. No, no, because I was still making children's movies at that time. And the whole thing was that once you became like 13 or 14 at that time, uh, you had no career anymore because all like the children's movies roles would dry up. So at that point, I was like, I probably am going to have to go to college. Um, and it wasn't until I started doing indies, more adult films and roles that I was like, OK, cool. So I can put, potentially do this as an adult. Do you recall a moment like that you felt comfortable in doing like the indies and these, the, was there less pressure, I guess I'm getting at in doing those roles, less of this like expectation of this becoming some big box office success? I just was better suited for the indies. I never really had the energy levels to be in those like commercial uh, kids movies. I was sort of always just like, oh, what? We have, what are we doing? I was like the most jaded child you've ever met in your life. So, um, so once, once I got to do indies where it wasn't so high energy and like adorable, I was actually way, way more comfortable. Okay. So when you weren't making movies at this time, and I think we're talking about your teenage years at this point, what were you doing? I lived in New York city and I had a best friend, Sean Dooley, um, and he and I just like traipsed around the city and went to clubs and um, I would get, I got in so much trouble. My poor mother, I had a credit card an ATM card and there was the subway. So I really, it's kind of dangerous for teenager, willful teens. When I had Jennifer Coolidge on the podcast earlier this year, we talked about her days of clubbing in New York City in the 1980s. And not to say clubbing doesn't exist here anymore, but it's just kind of different. Um, did you have like favorite clubs or favorite parts of the city? I mean, like, I just feel like that New York, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, that New York isn't around anymore, but like, it's kind of not. Um, and I'm just wondering what memories you have of like nightlife at that time when I think there were just less inhibitions. Yeah, I was banned for life from Don Hills, which was really sad because everybody went to Don Hills and I would try to get in from time to time and they'd be like, no, no, you are not allowed in here anymore. <laughs> there was this nightclub, I think it was called Spa that everybody went to. No, Spy, Spy, sorry, Spy. We all went to Spy, that was fun. Um, yeah, and the Cherry Tavern was this like bar that everybody would go to that was really fun. I also got banned from there for a little bit of time for starting a bar fight, um, a bar fight that like spilled out into the street and like all these cops had to come. It was crazy. And there was a period of time when like I never saw the sun and I just went out. Before we get deeper into it, let's take a quick break and check in with today's sponsor. 
If you were to look in my fridge right now, beneath the shelf of Topo Chico, you would find cases of Can. These are my currently in rotation batch, as I keep party packs stowed away as well. So what is Can? Can is a social tonic microdosed with cannabis that gives you a light and uplifted buzz, but with no hangover, fewer empty calories, all natural ingredients, and no regrets. Best of all, it tastes fucking good. So sure, I drink it for the THC CBD effects, but I also just enjoy it as a refreshment du jour. Blood orange cardamom is my favorite, but the grapefruit rosemary also slaps. For more information, including where to find it at your local dispensary and delivery options, follow at drinkcan with two N's or head to drinkcan.com. That's D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com. And we're back. When you did The Opposite of Sex, I mean, that film was really controversial at the time. It was depicting LGBTQ plus characters. Yeah, there's a resemblance. Too bad he's a fairy, right? That's not how I would put it. Well, then too bad he's however you'd put it. I look at it now compared to the landscape, you know, that we have, thankfully, and there's so much more out there. It wouldn't be controversial by today's standards, I don't think, but did that feel like a risk at the time? It didn't really feel like a risk to me. I mean, I had grown up the way that I grew up and, you know, I was surrounded by gay people and just, it was not abnormal to me at all. Um, if anything, like, I guess the character was a little bit risky because she was just such a kind of abhorrent teen. Um, but I loved that. And that was, what, that was what was fun to me. I'm wondering if you're aware of your status as a gay icon. I was going through your body of work and, you know, from the opposite of sex to monster, and then even thinking about, as we mentioned, now and then was written as a queer character. And obviously gays love you. We were talking about fashion designers earlier, many of whom are gay, they love you. And I'm just wondering, do you ever think about that status? And, and what is it you think that, that you love about gay people and you think in turn us gay people love about you? Well, I feel like I have less of that status now. No, that's not true. I went to the Glad Awards. Nobody cared about me. <laughs> I care about you. I'm not one of the young, you know, like the young icons now. But um, but I have always felt really embraced um, by your community. And I've always felt a part of it. Like it was my community also. Um, you know, I'm one of those girls that my best friend in high school was a gay man. And... Um, uh, I've always been, I've always had lots of gay male friends and, um, yeah. And I've, like you said, I've worked in a lot of, I've worked on a lot of projects where I've either played a gay character or was sort of in the realm of gay culture. Um, so, and I've always, I don't know, I've always felt comfortable and happy. I think the reason why I sort of became, um, I don't know. What did you say I was? Gay icon. I feel uncomfortable calling myself that. Well, I'll ascribe it to you so you can say that I called you that. You're just repeating my words. Okay. Well, the reason why maybe I am what you call a gay icon is, um, is that I think very much at the time that I became famous, I was all, I, I was very much my own thing. And I was not necessarily a traditional sort of ingenue. And I think the idea that I had the um, the like the strength and the chutzpah to sort of be my own person and be my own thing is very much what I would imagine it was like to come out and be um, gay in the 90s. And you very much were saying, regardless of what everyone else thinks, I am 
I am my own person. I am my own thing. And this is who I am. And there was that needing to have that sort of strength and again, like chutzpah. So I think that's where, where I think that's where the connection is. I think that is so well articulated. And I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head. I think there's that feeling of otherness in so many of the roles that you played, especially in your early life that I think LGBTQ plus people connected with because it's that sense of otherness. But also I want to say too, I felt like you embraced your queer fans in a way that made you so beloved. It's nice when we feel like we're getting a wink from, you know, the actor. And I feel like you sort of had that wink. There's a one other fan of yours that I wanted to bring into the conversation. Whenever I have someone on, I always look at, okay, well, who does this person follow? Who are our mutuals? This is one of our mutuals who's very busy filming the new season of her television show, but graciously found the time because I was like, it's Christina Ricci and she agreed. Hi, Christina, this is Padma Lakshmi. Oh my God, I love Padma so. And I have been a long time fan of yours. I've loved you in so many roles and so many movies. And I'm excited to be able to ask you this question on Evan's podcast today. I've always wondered, is there a role that you've always wanted to play but never had the chance to play? And if so, what is it? Why do you want to play it so bad? And who would you like as your co-star? Thank you. Icon. I can't believe it. I mean, her voice. Oh, so soothing. It's like magic, like heaven. I love her so much. You don't even understand. I love her so much. I love Top Chef so much. I will rewatch seasons. So good. <laughs> so good. Oh my God, I love you, Padma. Thank you so much for that question. Um, I know this sounds really crazy and silly, but I have always been particularly um, uh, particularly fascinated by the pathos and 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 um, suffering of Tinkerbell. <laughs> and she's just so rotten and terrible, but has been tortured for so long by Peter Pan that I actually think it'd be really fun to do a movie like a dark comedy about Tinkerbell. And I would like to be Tinkerbell. That is, I've always wanted to play Tinkerbell, but like it, the movie's about Tinkerbell and about how she can't show, how, you know, how like screwed up she is and bitter of, and jealous of Wendy and uh, being tortured by Peter. Okay, green light this immediately. I'm, I'm very, very intrigued by this. I, I, I love that. Um, it's mm. murderous. Very. It sounds incredible, right? Yeah. And there's just like that immediately subversive element to it that makes it exciting. It's like, you think you know, but you have no idea. So. Yeah. Cause she's like rotten and terrible in the book and in the Disney movie. And I feel like we should, this might be a really great anti-hero. I was going to say, and you know, anti-heroes have really taken off in the last decade. So this feels very apropos. Okay. I'm very into that. If any uh, studio execs are listening, let's get that greenlit. But also I want to be a guest judge on Top Chef, Padma. Let's manifest. Let me ask you about Sleepy Hollow. I mean, I feel like this is seen by many people as like your transition into adult roles. See, carved into the fire back, the archer. I've forgotten it. This was from long before we lived here. 
was there any sense of like, this is a different film experience. I am a leading lady now. Or do you think that was something that was more ascribed to you by others? Yeah, no, I definitely didn't feel that way. I felt like my, the things that officially made me an adult and adult roles were the indies that I did before that. And those indies are what led me to get Sleepy Hollow. And Sleepy Hollow was certainly first my big like studio film as an adult, but um, that didn't ever really resonate with me. It was more sort of like that experience was incredible because being on a Tim Burton set is like, is insane. And at that time it was just, you know, if you're making a movie like that, they, the budget was totally crazy. And um, so the, the, you know, the production design was insane and there were always huge amounts of actors around and stunts and horses. And it was just so big um, that it was really fun and sort of romantic to be a part of. Did that movie scare you when you watch it? I mean, you've been a part of a lot of horror films and I don't know if that's technically considered a horror film, but it is so scary. Yeah, I know it's scary. I tried to show it to my son and he was like, no, too scary. No, not yet. I get it. Yeah. You, in a 1999 interview, you spoke about the fact that the cover of the film had been digitally altered. They enhanced your breasts for it. And I have to imagine it's just so odd. It's your body and someone is coming in, altering it without your consent and then putting it out there to market a film. I don't know. That just seems so irksome. Um, but uh, yeah, what was that like to see? I mean, I thought, it, I thought it was funny. I also thought it was gross and a little cringy. And I still really hate, I mean, people will sometimes bring me that picture to sign and I always sign across the boobs to try to like minimize them a little bit because <laughs> it is kind of gross. I don't really enjoy being fetishized at all. And I especially feel like it must be weird when you're put in a situation where people are putting that image in your face as like a sign of admiration, but it's kind of like, well, wait, I don't like, I don't love that image of me, which is again, going back to like the Instagram of it all. I think one of the great things is being able to curate your own version of your celebrity and say, these are the past images of me that I like and that I want to distribute. And like, this is the nostalgia that I want to entertain. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's great. It's like building your own, um, your own history and your own uh, legacy in a way. I want to ask about that Grey's Anatomy episode because it's huge and I haven't heard you speak about it a lot in past interviews. And I was doing some research and it remains to this day, the highest rated and most watched episode of the series ever. Wow. Um, yeah, despite the fact that it's been on 180 years. And I'm wondering what it was like to come in and do that episode. This is a uh, season two of Grey's. And I really feel like these two episodes really catapulted it to the phenomenon that so many people today know it as. But what are your memories of filming that episode? And was it as tense filming that as the final product? Um, it was, I really enjoyed uh, filming it. It was kind of one of my first experiences on a TV show like that one. I had a lot of scenes with Isaiah Washington and I actually really loved working with him um, as an actor. Uh, and um, Sandra Oh was, was the first time I met her and worked with her and she was incredible. And um, I kind of didn't really know what I was in for before I got there. Like they decided to make it a two-part episode mid-filming the first one. Um, so it ended up being a lot bigger and more than I thought. I was like, oh, great, I'll just go to this guest star thing on this show that my sister loves. Um, 
And then it turned out to be that. Did you have any knowledge at the time that it was going to be the episodes that they were going to put after the Super Bowl? I don't remember knowing that, but I also don't really care that much about the Super Bowl. So I probably would not have understood what that meant. Yeah, no, no, totally. I, I know exactly what you meant. I just like vaguely, not even vaguely, I very much remember that episode because that was my first awareness of, oh, there's a reason to tune into the Super Bowl besides the halftime show. It was like, okay, so we get the halftime show and then there can be like really good episodes of television that follow the Super Bowl. So the Super Bowl is essentially just like the in-between. Um, I want to ask you about the movie Cursed um, because I love that film. Just having a really bad day. Just leave. And I was trying to think, what's a film that I can bring up for you that perhaps you haven't spoken about a ton since making? Maybe I'm wrong. Um, it had you teaming up with the legendary Wes Craven, and it ended up being quite an appropriate title for the film, as it was largely, from my understanding, reshot, and really seems like it was a nightmare production. Craven called it a difficult production, which I felt like there was a lot um, within that, that word difficult being very operative. Um, what do you remember of making that film? We shot it three times. Um, the first time we shot it and then they we took a break and they took a couple months and they rewrote it. And then we came back and we shot for pretty much the same amount of time. And it was recast at that point. And then they couldn't figure out the ending. So we shut down, they took a few months and rewrote the ending. And then we came back and shot that. And because we shot so many different versions and I don't really, think I saw it more than once. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what the what ultimately the final story was. So that's another thing people will be like, yeah, and at the end of it, I'm like, I actually, I couldn't tell you what ending ended up in the movie. And what are spirits like when you come back for a, a second round of reshoots rather? I imagine that maybe like the vibe is a little bit like, mm, I don't know about this one. Were you able to kind of step in and be like, yeah, we're gonna get it this time. Third time, we're gonna stick the landing. I know, I think at that point I was just like, okay, great. So we're just gonna shoot again and everyone's getting paid three times, guys. <laughs> getting paid three times. I think that was more my attitude. You know, so much of my questions is asking you to dig up memories from your life so long ago. And I'm reminded of, I just wrote this Buffy the Vampire Slayer book. And one thing Sarah Michelle Gellar was always saying to me, was like, Evan, I don't remember. Like you're asking me questions about <laughs> shit that happened 25 years ago. And although it might be burned in your brain, it's not uh, burned in my brain. Do you ever deal with that being that you've worked for so much of your life where people come up to you and they're like, Casper, now and then mermaids, just as I had. And you're kind of like, yeah, I get that it's top of mind for you, but I haven't thought about that in a long time. Well, when that, the, the main time that happens for me is people, when I sign things, will ask me to do a quote. <laughs> I do not remember my dialogue after 25 years. Like I, I just, and then they seem shocked by the fact that I wouldn't remember it. It's like, I was 10. Can't get enough of Shut Up, Evan? I don't blame you. That's why you have to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Shut Up, Evan, where you will be able to find advanced access to interviews, bonus episodes, video clips from the interviews, cut for time questions, and so much more. You don't want to miss out. I am fully committing to making the Patreon a much more robust experience for season three. So again, www do people say you know www.patreon.com forward slash shut up evan
So I want to talk about Yellow Jackets, obviously. And one thing I love about you and, and the character of Misty is how nuanced she is. It's really easy, I think, to take a character like this and make her crazy, but she's not crazy. She's actually not crazy at all. And she's really motivated in so many of her actions. And I know like grounded is not an action that you can play, but I'm wondering how you went about infusing her with so much humanity so that she wasn't just a caricature of a crazy person. Well, I think, you know, you do with any kind of character, but I think it's doubly important when you have it's such an extreme character like this who can so easily kind of become campy or um, sort of all surface. I think the morphine might be upsetting your tummy. Let's get this dose. Mm -hmm. Don't fuck with me. You know, you just want to make sure that all the behaviors track and that there's a reason for all of it and that you can justify the more extreme behavior. So, you know, with stuff like her, how her extreme sort of passive aggression and sort of like hostile cheerfulness, that's for me, I just felt like that's a lifetime of someone being frustrated and squeezed and put down and angry, but she is, um, but she's this tiny woman. So she can't really be openly hostile. Um, so she kind of, it's more this sort of like vicious bunny rabbit thing, but it's all based in anger and rage, which we know she would have because no one ever wants to be her friend for God's sakes. <laughs> Well, and the great thing about this series is we actually get to see all of those formative years of her life that led her to this. And what's also interesting about the show is like, you get those uh, glimpses of before the crash and then everything that happened as a result. So you just feel like you're taken on the full journey with all these characters. It's outstanding. We're getting a second season for a reason. Now you have Yellow Jackets, then you have this new film, Monstrous, then you have Wednesday coming to Netflix. Some people are saying we're in a Christina Ricci assance, and I'm just wondering what you make of that. It doesn't really roll off the tongue though, does it? Right, because it's. it feels like it needs to be Ricci Sans, but we have to get the second I in there. I, I would appreciate everyone coming up with something a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's manifest. Okay, so let's get you on Top Chef and let's get, let's figure out what we sort of collectively, yeah, want to call this. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. Again, it's like one of those things where you just keep working and then people tell you that it's really going well. And you're like, okay, great, yay. <laughs> What can you tell us about Monstrous? This movie looks fucking scary. It looks so scary. It's um, it's like it's a psychological thriller, and it is in the style of a 1950s um horror movie, and ostensibly it is the 1950s, and she is a housewife who is fleeing an abusive relationship with her son, um, and they move to a new place, and um, they realize there is something haunting her. Slowly, you see, as she devolves, the whole world kind of changing, and there's a twist. It's a big twist at the end. Yeah, I'm curious what's in that water, because I saw something emerging from that water. <laughs> um, are you a big fan of horror films? You've been in a number of them, but do you enjoy watching them? I do like watching scary movies. And also because I have children, I rarely get to watch them. So anytime I like go to a hotel, it's the first thing I do is find the scariest thing I can watch and watch it. What's the scariest thing that you've watched recently or just a scary movie that you're always ready to put on? I'm not always ready to put this one on. In fact, I found it to be so disturbing that I, I wish I hadn't seen it and I wish I could erase it from my brain. Wolf Creek, Wolf Creek. Oh, the Australian movie. 
it's really just the most disturbing movie I've ever seen. It's so yeah. scary. And it's oh like, God. It, it's, a, it's a source of invasive thoughts. Like now my invasive thoughts will sometimes go back to that movie. And it, it really, I really wish I had never seen it. Well, there's something about that, like the open roads of like the deserts of Australia where you're just like, they're not getting help. There is a sequel to Wolf Creek that I haven't seen. I don't ever want to see it. Yeah, ever. I'm with you. No, it, it stays with you. That's funny you mentioned that. Well, funny or horrifying. Yeah, exactly. Okay. While we wind down, you mentioned that you're a huge fan of Top Chef. I believe that you are also a Housewives fan. Um, we just had Molly Shannon on the show last week and, and we talked at length because she loves OC and Shannon Bedore. Uh, she stands Shannon Bedore. That's her decision. I, I can't really speak to that, but I'm wondering. I haven't watched OC in a long time, so I'm not up to date on OC. I am up to date on Beverly Hills and I was up to date on New York. Oh, okay. But yeah, those are the, those are the good ones. That, I also recommend Potomac as well. It just feels like too much chaotic fighting. It is chaotic. Like, you know, like there's a really, like, they do a really good job with Beverly Hills of like the storyline and building the storyline. And it's this huge, like it's usually one focused thing with like tiny little off, a few little offshoots. And I can get, I find that a little bit easier to get behind. If you had a horse in the race, who, who on Beverly Hills is the one that you're just kind of like, she brings it every time. I'm a big um, Erica Jane fan. Wow. Are you a fan of her music? I mean, I've heard it on the show. It's not really <laughs> like something I would listen to by myself at home. What are you listening to? What's what's on your, I was going to say iPod. I'm dating myself here. What's on your Spotify playlist, I think they say? Well, really, my playlist at this point is for my son when I'm in the car with him. So it's all Lil Nas X. He's obsessed. Oh, I love so, that. Yeah, we listen to like Industry Baby four times in a row on the way to school. <laughs> Listen, start them young and get them into the, the bops. I love that. But going back to Housewives real quick, I mean, I just feel like it's such a big theme of so many of these interviews that I do where so many acclaimed actors, prestige actors like yourselves love Housewives. And Molly Shannon and I were talking about it. One thing Molly said was she loves how direct they are. They say what's on their mind. There's no sort of BS with them. And that stuck with me because I'm like, yeah, they really do like, they, they go out and they confront their issues because that's, you know, that's what's asked of them on the show. They have so many issues. It's so funny. It's like- So many issues. Everything's an issue. Walking down the block. There's a lot, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of problems on the way to that. Yeah. Car. Why didn't you save room for me on the block? It's like, I'm walking on this side and you should have, yeah, or yeah. Or like, you know, I feel like you're pushing me into traffic, but what is it that you love about Housewives and, and keeps you watching? I mean, I have to be honest. I watch it to what uh, I watch it for the drunk fights. Yeah. They're good. The drunk behavior. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Christina Ricci. Thank you so much for your time. I adore you and I hope to have you back at some point. You can check out all of your fabulous projects coming up. And I just, I thank you. I thank you so much for all you did for little me and then adult me here today. You have been a constant source of joy. Oh, thank you. Well, I really enjoy you. And I, I like, you know, I enjoy following you and commenting on your snarky stories and stuff. Really, <laughs> really has brightened up many of my days. Well, thank you. I appreciate that so very much. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.